century number 10 for Brendan Taylor. He's got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada. We're talking about how good he is. And there it is. It's 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, taken. Dean Midwigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates here at Cole. He cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. It is indeed a great joy and pleasure to be with you. The first podcast of 2022 and wishing you a very happy and may 2022 Bay be a great deal kinder to you. Right, let's get straight into the meat and potatoes, shall we? So uh, we're starting off the new year in a very nice way because... The gentleman who we're going to be talking to shortly is someone who's been a part of a very iconic radio station. If you're lucky enough to be able to listen to BBC Test Match Special, it is a radio station where you can listen to ball, Bible, Bible commentary of uh, anything, any international cricket, and in fact, a lot of the domestic cricket in England as well. Both women's and men's cricket are covered substantially on BBC TMS. And uh, the first time I heard his dulcet tones was back in 1993 94, 1993 1994, when England A toured South Africa and played uh, pretty much all of the South African provinces and then had a five-day game against uh, the South Africa A-side in Port Elizabeth. Simon Mann, thank you so much for uh, taking time out to join us. Third time lucky. We've had a few problems with this podcast, haven't we? <laughs> uh, well, let, let's gloss over that. Um, you know, sometimes the, the technical dif- difficulties between Zimbabwe and, and Australia, where I am at the moment, uh, at the end of this uh, Ashes tour, we, we'll, we'll overcome them. We'll overcome yeah, ninety-three, ninety-four, long, t- long time ago. A very memorable tour, actually, um, back then, because it was the first uh, England tour to South Africa since the end of apartheid. So although it was only an England A tour, or they call them the England Lions now, uh, it was it was actually a newsworthy and noteworthy tour because, it, you know, England were going back to South Africa after many, many years away. It was actually really fascinating to be the BBC reporter, you know, who went there to, to cover the tour. And two names who stood out in that particular tour, John Crawley and Darren Goff. Yeah, one of the good things about covering a tour like that is you you, uh, tend tend to be a lot of young players on it, young promising players. So you sort of get to know them. And as a journalist, that's important, really. You get get to know the players. And I remember uh, Darren Goff on that tour. He was just as ebullient uh, and effervescent uh, as he is now. He's just (laughs) taken over at at Yorkshire. He was a radio host for for quite a few years and commentator himself. And he brought that enthusiasm to the to the radio airwaves. And I'm sure he'll do it at Yorkshire as well. He was he was in. on that tour and that was the sort of start of his international uh, path and John Crawley was on that tour as well a, a, a right-handed uh, batter very strong through the onside he made a double hundred in Port Elizabeth in one of the early games I think we all thought that this was going to be a an, an, you know, huge star for England huge batting star um, as it turned out his career didn't quite flourish in the way that um, he would have hoped and I think lots of other people would have hoped as well he, he did play a, 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 a reasonable amount for England he played about 37 times off the top of my head and averaged yeah. uh, about 34. So those numbers, uh, you know, you re- really want to be averaging 40, don't you, as, as, as a batter in Test cricket. I sort of feel you've, you've really achieved something. He did make he did make significant hundreds, but he didn't quite fulfil the, the promise on that tour, unlike Darren Goff, who, who, who very much did. Oh, yeah, I, I think, you know, we saw 
uh, was Dominique Cork on that tour, if I remember correctly? Because I, I remember an incredible opening spell of bowling from Darren Goff. I'm sure it was Dominique Cork at the Wanderers, where mm. like, for the first hour or so, th- they were unplayable. There was pace and bounce, repeatedly pace and bounce by both bowlers. I mean, even Darren Goff, who doesn't or didn't necessarily rely on bounce, because he's not the tallest of bowlers, but he extracted bounce, and, and he was a real handful at the Wanderers, I remember. Yeah, he, he, he might well be. Um, it's it's um, sort of sifting through my brain to remember exactly uh, which cricketers were on that tour and which cricketers were on a, another tour around that time I went on, which is a tour to Australia. But I think Dominic Cork was there. And actually, that game at the Wanderers, you, you bring it all back to me now, Dean, that game at the Wanderers was played on quite a spicy pitch. I think they had lots of illness in the camp. And I think one stage they were struggling to actually field an 11 on one of the days. But anyway, there was enough in the surface and their, their pace bowlers... Um, you know, really got into action. Martin McCaig, he was on that oh, tour as well. Martin McCaig, the, uh, the the Kent fast bowler, he was he he, he was um, uh, he could roar in, and he actually went on the ninety four five um, Ashes tour to Australia um, with with less uh, fruitful uh, results. It had to be said because he went home with injury. I, for some reason, I don't quite know why, but I loved the nineteen ninety four ninety five. Uh, Ashes tour to Australia you know I mean I I don't know whether it was because I'd got to a point that I'd finally finished my schooling in South Africa and I was coming home and you know I didn't have to worry I could now focus on my Zimbabwean team I'm not entirely sure what what the deal was there I loved that tour again it wasn't a particularly good tour for England though we did see some very good individual performances Darren Goff again you know obviously had cemented well had now established himself as the England opening bowler and scored a couple of very lusty blows down the order scored a very fine half century I remember and I remember uh, in the ashes that you know his first couple of wickets um, I think there was a, a Liam David Michael so in other words there was there was Michael Slater who he got out David Boone who he got out and he ensured that he incorporated the names of the the bat the batters that he got out in in uh, into his son's you know name <laughs> if you if you understand what I'm trying to say <laughs> So, um, well, that's, that's, that's one way of naming your kids, isn't it? With your, with your test wickets. <laughs> and, I, and I remember that. And of course, you know, then there was the infamous, um, unfortunately for Graham Hick and, and many of his supporters, Mike Asseton deca- declaring on, on Graham Hick uh, when he was on 98. And, and here, because of, I mean, obviously, Graham, even in, in those days when there was no satellite television, and there was no internet here in Zimbabwe. Um, there was a huge following of, of Graham Hicks supporters because of the fact that, you know, his parents were much loved and respected and still are here in, in Harare in particular. So there was a lot of things to remember of that tour of 94, 95. And, of course, that very bizarre quadrangular series as opposed to the usual World Series where you just have the three teams play. Now we had Australia A, Australia England and Zimbabwe. Yeah, it was a, that was a really bizarre <clears throat> tournament. That uh, I remember one specific day going to the Adelaide Oval to watch Australia play Australia A on Australia Day. Um, <laughs> talk about sort of internalising everything and just focusing on your own. Um, but there were some really good players in that Australia A side uh, who you went on to be stars in their own right, the li- likes of Hayden and, uh, and Ponting. Of course, Zimbabwe were part of that yeah. series. Well, I think the feeling was that a, a series with Australia 
England, who weren't that strong in one-day cricket then, and Zimbabwe just wasn't enough to capture the imagination. So they, they bunged in another side, Australia A. The, the experiment didn't last very long, um, and yeah, it was it was pretty unsatisfactory, really. But but basically, I mean, I don't think you can argue the two strongest sides in that competition were yeah. Australia, and, you know, and Australia A. Um, uh, it was it felt a bit it was a sort of bit demeaning in a way. Um, and I remember one game where England. Uh, beat Australia A at the MCG and won the qualifying matches. It actually felt a big deal because the, the, the tour was, you know, it was, it was not very successful for England. They, they struggled on it. It actually felt significant just to beat Australia's uh, second team. That's sort of where English cricket was with one-day cricket uh, in, in the mid-90s, although, of course, uh, you know, not, not that long before, two or three years before they'd actually reached the World Cup final in Australia and lost that uh, memorable final to Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I think, yeah, two years before that, you're absolutely right. And I guess for me, from a Zimbabwean perspective, it was just so nice to see the young and emerging players come through. You know, Heath Streak and, and Paul Strang, the leg spinner, who I know impressed Ian Chappell immensely uh, with, his, with his googly and, and just his variations and so on. But uh, I think a lot of people, I think Streak was the one who a lot, most people actually really sort of took note of, you know, sort of sit up, sat up and, t- and, and, take, and took note of because uh, he was pretty slippery in those days. Um, so that was pretty good. But anyway, um, let's move on to more present stuff, Simon. It, it's been a bit of a disappointing t- or disappointing Ashes series for England, to say the least. I have to say, I just very recently, last night actually, listened to an interview that Jonathan Agnew, your colleague, had with Joe Root. I don't actually know if I've ever heard a captain sound so incredibly exhausted physically and, and emotionally. Yeah, um, it's it's been a tough tour for for, for Joe Root. Uh, he's made some runs, um, not as many as he would have liked. He, he talked early in the tour about you know his confidence and his ability to quote bang out a hundred in Australia. That's not happened. He's nicked off eight times, wicket keeper or slip, and his team have been thrashed in three Test matches. And it's the third um, series he's been in charge of, third Ashes series he's been in charge of, where England haven't won you know, two defeats uh, and the draw in 2019. Uh, it does get on top of you being England captain. It's a high-profile job. Uh, he's done it more than any other captain in English Test history. He's captained England for 60 Test matches. No one else has done as many as that. It's a long tour. They've had COVID restrictions. Uh, it, there's a lot of COVID around now in Australia. You know, you have to be careful. It's, it, it wears you down. They've been planning for it for a long time, two years in the planning, and you know, very little uh, to show for it. You can understand why, getting towards the end of the tour, that he, he does sound uh, a bit downbeat. And, and English cricket at the moment, English test cricket, is in a state of limbo. I think we're all waiting to see what is going to be the outcome of this tour in terms of, or we know the outcome in terms of the score, but in terms of personnel who who stays in the team for the tour to the West Indies, what happens to the coach, what happens to the captain, what happens to the managing director of, uh, of English cricket, Ashley Giles, whether they all stay, whether some some go, uh, how they're going to restructure it, and, and which players hang on, which players retire. There's, there's a lot up in the air at the moment. So there's this strange limbo around this tour. And of course, the reality of the situation, Simon, is should uh, or when England go to the West Indies, COVID permitting, you may find that they may play slightly better against the West Indies. And then everybody may say, well, you see, everything is still reasonably okay. We had a bad time of it in Australia, but 
Uh, but having said that, the West Indies are a bit of a handful at home as well. Uh, there's no doubting mm. that. And I know that when England toured the West Indies a couple of, what is it, three years ago, I think it was, two, three years ago, you know, they certainly struggled in the test matches, didn't they? Especially against the pace of the West Indian bowlers. Yeah, I mean, not had a good time of it in the Caribbean in, in recent tours. It's a, it's a while since they won there, and they were beaten in the last uh, series, um, you know, well beaten actually. And uh, you know, West Indies have not been uh, that good, uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, for for a long time now. But England, when they go to the Caribbean, have struggled against them, and they've also dropped a couple of Test matches against them at home uh, in, in recent series. So, yeah, I, I think that's all. Actually, I think it illustrates. Um, some of the problems that England are having at the moment. You know, they are a very inconsistent uh, test match side. They've, you know, they're strong in white ball, but in, in the red ball, I think they're perhaps you know, for, for all sorts of reasons. And we, we could debate it for two hours and, yeah. and come, you know, try to come up with the reasons why uh, English cricket at test level is struggling at the moment. Uh, but they, they are, and they've had some inconsistent results at home, and they've had some real thrashings uh, away from home. Uh, you know, this tour, India, last time they went to the, the Caribbean. So, yeah, they've got they've got quite a few problems to address in the next uh, weeks, months, and years actually. Because I think it's you know it's one of those things that's not just going to be sorted out overnight. As you say, Joe Root and Chris Silverwood certainly are under scrutiny. Root in terms of his captaincy. If if maybe Joe himself feels after this, I've had enough. I need to focus on my well-being. I need to focus on my game. I cannot do this anymore as captain. I guess the big question then would be. Who would be next in line? Well, this is one of the this is one of the problems that England have actually because it's not obvious who is next. Uh, ben Stokes is the vice captain, so you say, well, it is obvious who's next. It'll be Ben Stokes, but he has been out of the game uh, for or was out of the game for a while. He had a finger injury. He also had uh, mental health issues. Uh, he was struggling with his mental health, and so he took a big chunk out of the, the summer and towards the end of the summer as well. It was his, actually his place in the actually series was in doubt. It was, he actually only joined the this, the squad after it had been named. Um, so, is is he the man to take over? I'm not saying he, he's not got the ability to take over all the cricket wherewithal. And he he came in in the summer when England needed him and captained the one day side. Uh, when the whole team, or not the whole team, but quite a few in the team, the original team um, were out with COVID and they picked a completely different team. He captained it and he, he, was, he was playing with a, with a damaged fingers and they won the series. Uh, it was actually quite a significant triumph for, for England against a good Pakistan side. Uh, so, yeah, so do they go to Ben Stokes? The issue is with Ben Stokes is that he's already got quite a lot on his plate. You know, he's one of their main batters. He's also one of their main bowlers. Uh, he's one of those. He's sort of inspirational. Uh, do they want to put that load on him? And you think in the in the past when they've done that with with all rounders like Ian Botham and Andrew Flintoff made them captain, it it hasn't worked out. And that doesn't mean to say it won't work out with Ben Stokes, but there are some you know some past ish, past events where or past instances where it hasn't worked. And so I suppose that's the that's you know one of the issues uh, with Ben Stokes. But if it's not Ben Stokes, it's not easy to see. Uh, who it will be. And that's a very interesting point you make because I sometimes get the feeling that England, and I'm sure other test nations as well, but we, the focus is on England, so we'll we'll leave it at that. Sometimes they fall into the trap of wanting their most domineering players to captain. So Ian Botham, Andrew Flintoff, Kevin Peterson, you know, those players who really do stand head mm. and shoulders above the rest, that whatever it is that they do on the field, they they feel that because of that, 
changing games by taking quick wickets, catches, scoring runs, and, and so on. Now uh, it may not be a bad idea to thrust them into the captaincy. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it has happened. It does happen. I suppose you, as you become a senior player and through that, and you know, you're a prominent player on the side. And the, the issue for England is, um, you know, in this instance, is, is who else? And the, the side's got some young players in it. It's got a lot of other players whose international futures, test match futures are uncertain. So obviously you want someone who is experienced enough but also certain their place in the side, and you you, you run down the, the the eleven or you know the sixteen or seventeen that have been out in Australia, and there are, there are very few candidates. You, you, know, you might say someone like Rory Burns, who, who's captains at, at Surrey, but is he guaranteed his place in the side? Well, he was dropped during this series, so you know there, there there must be a question mark against him. So you know that that's one of the issues that they've got, and that's why I suppose inevitably the focus goes on to Ben Stokes and, and, and he is the vice captain uh, you know Josh Butler has, has, has got some captaincy experience but is he going to survive this series is he going to want to continue in, in test match uh, cricket do they want him to continue hasn't had a good tour hasn't had a good time over recently uh, is it worth him just concentrating on one day cricket where he's an absolute gun player he might well be England's next one day captain yeah. actually uh, yeah. Josh Butler when Owen Morgan uh, stands down which can't be too far ahead in the future so those are the sort of issues that England have got and that's just a about the captain there are many other issues it's about the sort of structure of the team and the whole structure of the english test match game as well i, I have a a wild card suggestion i i notice these days in social media it's now referred to as unpopular opinion he's a man who has been in and out of the england side and, and i'm not sure he's always been treated fairly it, are there possibilities of someone for example like johnny bairstow taking over as captain not necessarily wicket keeper but is is this something he could bring to the table in terms of captaincy? Um, my initial reaction to that would be a sceptical one. Um, I know what you're saying from a distance. You know, he, he's got that sort of, you know, he, he's a very experienced cricketer, yeah. uh, both white ball and, and red ball. And he, of course, he, he plays splendidly in, in Sydney. Whether he would be able to deal with that, I, I'm not sure. Has he captained a lot? Uh, not, not knowingly. I, I don't remember him being a captain. Uh, you, you may have done it in junior cricket. So that, to me, would be uh, a big gamble. That, that's why I didn't include his name, really. Yeah. I just included the, the two people, who were A, Bory Burns, who's done it at Surrey, and, and B, Ben Stokes, who's the vice-captain. That's why I think it's it's so hard to see who else. It may, you know, it may just be that there is only... If, if, if there's a vacancy, it may be that Jay Root continues. Um, but, we, you know, inevitably the speculation is starting... And I think you know you, all all roads uh, lead to Ben Stokes. It would seem, um, but you know, it, does he want that the burden of captaincy? So uh, I one or two very tricky decisions coming up for for the England hierarchy. And uh, of course, this Test match that has just finished in Sydney, this was a good Test match. Yes, once again England completely outplayed, but we did see some some good performances. I I, I thought Jack Leach was pretty good in the second innings. I thought he bowled. You know, found good places to bowl when he took his four wickets. Not not particularly good in the first innings, but he, he made it happen in the second innings. But of course, um, I guess the standout performer would be Johnny Bairstow with his chipped finger and all. That innings of 113 was brilliant. I mean, I I know that a lot of people refer to the, that rollicking partnership that Bairstow and Stokes had against South Africa and Cape Town. It was good to watch because it is almost T20 mode. But to me, given the fact that England were in so much trouble at 36 for four, 
and really had not featured at all in terms of being positive with the bat. The way that Bester came out, took the Australian bowlers by the scruff of the neck, and fine, he didn't get Australia, he didn't get England back into the game, but he just brought some respectability and you know to the total and, and smiles to faces, didn't he? Yeah, I think he, he did. I mean, it, England had had no before that Test match had no five wicket hauls and no centuries in the series. Um, you know, after three Test matches, and, you know, clearly failing with with bat and ball and in the field, lots of drop catches as well. And there was just there was just something different in that last game. Stuart Broad taking five wickets, albeit uh, five for a hundred and one. And I think he actually mentioned it would be nice not to go for a hundred. And no no cricketer, no bowler likes to go for a gallon, as we call it, which is if you go for a hundred runs. But you know, still five for a hundred. One, you know, is a five, uh, but yeah, Bairstow's innings was was superlative. Uh, I mean, counterattacked. He took on Nathan Lyon. No one's been able to do that so far in this Ashes series. Lyon's been you know, been miserly. Uh, economy rate of two point one before that last Test match, and and wickets as well. So uh, you know, he was able to hold an end in the first innings, take wickets in the second. Bairstow got after him, kept you know plonking into the stand, hit three sixes in the innings. Scored his runs in good time, uh, 138 balls for his 113. It was it was a fine innings. It was his second Ashes hundred. He made one in Perth in a big partnership with David Milan on the on the tour four years ago. But that was a really flat pitch. Yes. This had a bit more in it, a bit more spice, there was some bank, extra bounce in it, and that's why he got wrapped on the glove. So he had that to contend with as well. The fact that he had to bat with a with a damaged uh, finger. So yeah, it was a it was a it probably probably his best. Test match innings, he played really well. And you know, if you score an Ashes hundred in Australia, then that's a significant moment, I think, for for any cricketer. Score hundreds in Australia, it's like scoring hundred in India, or you know, indeed in in South Africa, whatever. Yeah. You know, those are those are big series in which to score score centuries. I, I, I tell you, also, I'm a very big fan of, and that's Zach Crawley. That innings, he's seventy odd that he got. It's it's quite amazing because Zach Crawley reminded me of a player we spoke of earlier on in the podcast, John Crawley. Um, very similar. So Crawley strong, through, well Zach strong through the leg side. John was very strong through the leg side, and I guess we need to ask the question: Are they related? A, lot, a few people have asked this question. They are not actually. It's actually, it, it, there is some currency that they were. There was an assumption that they were related, uh, but they're, they're, they're not anyway. They just they just happen to be two cricket crawlers. Uh, John from Lancashire in the northwest, and uh, Zach uh, from from Kent. Uh, so they they are not related. But you but there is you're right. They are both. They were both uh, strong leg side players, and that's pr- possibly one of um, Zach Crawley's. Uh, downfalls uh, last year because he averaged 10 in test cricket and got dropped uh, and came back into the side uh, midway through this series basically because England were, you know, Rory Burns was failing but he, but people I saw in this innings why the selectors picked him in the first place because he hits the ball so crisply yes. he counterattacks at the top of the order which you know sometimes is really useful to you know, take the take the attack to the bowler don't let them dominate you totally and his, his leg side play in particular was was really sweet especially also I mean he's a very good driver down the ground as well one of his problems has been that slightly playing across the ball and it's got him into trouble and he's, you know, he's had a wretched year really I mean he made a very fluent 50 in Ahmedabad in the third test of England's tour uh, to India and he made that superlative uh, 267 against Pakistan a couple of summers ago as well but apart from that you know it's 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 been thin times for him, but in those innings, you've seen enough quality to think 
um, can, you know, he can make himself into a decent test player. But of course, there's no good having all the shots if you if your defence isn't strong enough and you, you just get out early and you have all the shots in the world. But if you can't defend, if you can't stay in, it's a waste of time. So it'll be interesting to see how Crawley develops from here, whether this is a, a springboard to success or whether it's you know a, a sort of flashy innings that caught the eye, but ultimately no substance to it. I mean, I think everyone hopes that it's not. I think everyone hopes that a player of that quality with those shots uh, you know, can really develop and go on and have a successful career. And the thing is, Simon, England have been blessed over a couple of years of having a, a very, very good opening partnership. It's something that they're struggling with immensely now. But if you go back over the years, I mean, uh, Cook and Strauss were very good together. Treskothic and Strauss mm. were very good together. But uh, certainly... Um, Atherton and Stewart were also very good together. I, I loved it when Alex mm. Stewart actually opened the batting, as were Atherton and Gooch, because what you had with, in particular, Alistair Cook and Mike Atherton, they had that stability and solidity, which then allowed any of the other players that we've spoken of to be a bit more forceful and, and to, to apply impetus if, if needed. So it would be a wonderful thing if England could have something similar with Hasim and Crawley, Hasim Hamid and Crawley, you know, doing something very similar. But poor old Hamid really seems to. I wonder what's going to happen in this test match. Are they going to maybe show an act of of kindness and mercy and maybe leave him out, you know, for the sake of his well-being, or they're going to say we have faith in you, and if you still feel that you are strong enough to play, then we're going to play you. This is going to be very interesting to see how that works out. Yeah, we're on the the day before the test match. Uh, we're recording this, uh, the, the fifth test match in Hobart. Uh, so we don't know the England team yet. Um, it may well be uh, released um, and people know the team when, when they're listening to this. Yes. But Hamid's really struggled on this tour. Uh, you know, he's brought back into test match cricket uh, after a, an improving uh, improvement with Nottinghamshire. He was struggling at Lancashire. He was picked to play when he was in, uh, to get to India a few years back. He looked really good at the age of 19 against the Indian spinners. And then he broke his hand in a, in a match in Mahali. And he was never the same player after that. And he's, he's gradually fought his way back. Made a couple of half centuries against uh, India in the last English summer. But here, he's not come to terms with it at all. So, yeah, England have massive problems at the top of the order since, really, um, Andrew Strauss retired. They have been through the card at the top of the order. Everyone's played. Uh, you know, you, you or I could get a game. I mean, it's been a bit like that um, at the top of the order for, for England. Uh, you know, so many players in and out, um, you know, seven test matches here. No, that's not going to work. Bring in someone else. And uh, there's no stability at all. And you're quite right. Uh, you know, a lot of good sides uh, you know, that are based on a really solid top order and England have not had that and I, I think it was a statistic coming into the Melbourne Test match that in 2000 in, in 2021 England's uh, sort of average opening sort of um, top order was or Root was coming in at number four on average at 36 for two mm. so you know that just and that puts him under pressure of course as well your best player is under pressure he's always in against the new ball so yeah, it's 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 a problem, and it's you know it's another problem associated with this uh, England side, and you know, in someone like Crawley, how, c- could he be part of the answer? They need to find someone to go with him, and obviously Crawley needs to take his chance now and and, and progress. Uh, the pitch is going to be an interesting one, isn't it? Because obviously, with it being so much colder in Hobart, 
Um, I was mm. listening to a podcast and Alex Hartley, who has played a lot of her cricket there as well, uh, talks about when the sun goes down, you even need hand warmers, which is astonishing given the fact that certain plates, uh, places in Australia have recorded Celsius uh, degrees of 50, 50 Celsius and, and um, the players are going to be playing in, I wouldn't quite call them England uh, conditions, but it's, it's jolly cold down in Tasmania at night when, when, when the sun goes down, isn't it? Yeah, it, it can get it can get a bit chilly. I mean, it's, in theory, it's summer. It's so high summer. What we're yeah. in uh, early January, um, but it's not always that warm uh, in Hobart. I have been to Hobart when it's been thirty-seven degrees, right. and then the next day it was seventeen degrees. So the the, the weather can be quite uh, changeable as well. But generally speaking, it's been uh, quite a cool uh, Australian. Uh, summer has been uh, Sydney's had an awful lot of rain uh, hasn't been particularly hot uh, last time I was in Sydney four years ago there was one day when it's 47 degrees it's, it hasn't approached anything like that uh, so far on this uh, trip but, you know, but one of the reasons they're playing a day night match in Hobart which is you know might not be the best place to hold a day night match might be zipping all around here then everywhere by 10 o'clock at night is this game was supposed to be played in Perth but because of the Covid restrictions uh, people but going into Perth, there was like a 14-day quarantine period, which is you know, totally impractical in, a, in an Ashes series. Um, they, had, well, they went to Hobart, but the, the hours of play are the same. Um, and ba- basically, the hours are like that um, for the, the, the eastern seaboard of Australia, the Sydney and Melbourne audience, because people want to watch in the evening when they come home from work. And that's when you can sell the most advertising revenue. So the Perth Test match uh, you know, is perfect for the eastern seaboard of Australia but no Perth Test match after Hobart same hours therefore uh, hours of play 3 to 10 o'clock and if you know the if there's a bit of rain around and they haven't bowled the rovers in time, you could actually play until 11 o'clock at night. So <laughs> test me. cricket at 11 o'clock at night in, <laughs> in uh, freezing cold Hobart is, is, is a possibility. Not, not freezing cold, but, you know, quite cool. Colder conditions, shall we say, maybe. Yeah, mm. Colder conditions. Um, and in the pitch, yes. I mean, this is interesting. So from what I've heard, and just a reminder, if you're listening to the podcast, it's been recorded a day before the fifth and final Ashes Test match. So you may listen to it slightly later and wonder what on earth is going on. Um, but the pitch, certainly from what I've heard, seems to be very green, mm. which suggests that maybe England may not go, may not play Jack Leach. I, I wonder if they'll, if they'll be tempted to ensure that they have their seam department with Joe Root bowling a few overs of Ospin, uh, or whether they'll maybe just play it safe and, and still pick Leach. I. I- it looks as if they won't play him, but basically because Ben Stokes can't bowl, this is the problem they had all last summer when Ben Stokes wasn't available. He balances the sides, the fourth seamer. When they haven't got him, it's hard for them to play a, a, a spinner, really, especially in a, in a pink ball uh, match in those sort of conditions. You know, you, you'd probably want to go with four seamers. It looks as though that's what England are going to do. So Jack Leach will have to sit this one out. Uh, best guess on England's four seamers for this game. Looks like James Anderson's going to be left out. So Robinson comes back. Uh, Wokes comes back and uh, Broad and Wood uh, keep their places. That's my best guess um, from this distance, um, sort of under 24 hours away uh, from the match. So, yeah, but Jack Leach missing out because of Ben Stokes' injury, really. That's what it looks like anyway. And then as for Australia, now I don't know whether uh, Travis Head is, is 100% fit again, but Usman Kawaja has to play. I mean, they cannot leave him out after scoring those incredible hundreds, can they? 
No, he is going to play um, Usman Khawaja. They dropped Marcus Harris ah. uh, at the top of the order. So yeah, so that's that's uh, you know significant news for Australia. So you know, in a, in a way, uh, Travis Head's uh, misfortune getting COVID. Uh, in Melbourne uh, was bad news for Marcus Harris uh, ultimately he wouldn't necessarily seen, seen it coming uh, Marcus Harris because they, they persisted with him he was under pressure early in the series actually you know, helped them win the Melbourne Test match highest score in the game uh, a few runs in Sydney but not too many but you know he, he, they want to bring Travis Head back he made 100 in the first test and so uh, Marcus Harris has got to go because Usman Khawaja was sensational at Sydney. That's three successive Ashes hundreds at the SDG now oh, for me. Usman Khawaja, age of 35. Not bad, is it? Coming back at age of 35 <laughs> and reading off a couple of hundreds, two and a half years out of Test match cricket. Uh, only the ninth player to, to do it in the in the history of the Ashes to score uh, 100 in both innings of, of a Test match. So I'm assuming Khawaja will then be opening a batting with David Warner. Uh, yeah, I think I think I think that's what they've said. Yeah, that, that because um, they think he can do a job up there. Um, you know, he, he has done it a little bit in the past, and so that's what they're going to go with. Um, yeah, so yeah, head comes in back at, at five, at five, uh, yeah, yeah, green I, at six, and, and and carry at seven. Right. So yeah, it's, it, it's it's not it's not ideal for Kawaja actually in no. a way because you know he's got his hundreds at you know coming in at number five. Um, now he's got to face that uh, hard pink ball, possibly under lights. Um, but you know, he's got the confidence of a couple of hundreds behind him. I don't know, too, and it's just me being very superstitious, maybe Simon. But I, I like, I really like the idea of of Usman Kawaja. As soon as I heard that he was at number five, to me, I felt comfortable with that you know, and and he he played like a proper num- number five bat- batter would play. And I'm being very superstitious, but I would have liked just I would have loved to have seen him continue at number five. I mean, all, yeah, he may have, he may still have got out for two ducks. I understand that. I just liked the way that he came in at number five and very much dictated terms. So he wasn't overly aggressive. He actually reminded me so much of Andy Flower in the way that he played the spinners and the way that he played the reverse sweep. He didn't, you know, he wasn't afraid to hit the ball over the top playing the reverse sweep. I mean, you, you've seen a fair amount of Andy Flower when he played for Zimbabwe, but mm. you would have seen him for Essex as well. I mean, me as a totally blind person, there were just such similarities in the way that he went about his business. And of course, Andy Flower used to bat at number five in Test cricket for Zimbabwe. Well, Andy Flower was a, a magnificent player. I mean, I would say yeah, better player than Kawaja. His, his Test record would show that, and he was he was playing you know against the the big nations as well and, and producing. And his Test match average is is excellent. He was a superb player of, of spin bowling. Uh, you know, Kawaja has had uh, not quite as much success, but you know, pretty decent uh, uh, Test career, averaging uh, over forty. And you know, England don't have, and England only have one player in their side who averages over forty. So, you know, they would love a player like um, uh, Kawaja at the moment, and he uh, he, he was excellent at that, the SCG. Uh, you know, whether it helps, you get a bit of perspective. You're only thirty-five years of age, and you've done it all, not all, but you've you've experienced the the highs and lows yeah, of Test enough. cricket. And you get another chance, and you take it. and you know, it's like a golden day out, isn't it? Really, a golden yes. few days, and there and there have been a few Australians who've had some golden days in this series, like Scott Bowden, for example, who's come in and two Test matches, and he, you know, he's every time he gets the ball in in hand, he's taking a wicket or bowling a maiden over, just bowls a tight line, and uh, it's, it's really worked for him. Uh, I mean, in selection, I mean, this Australian side at the moment, okay, I think they're playing against quite a, a, an ordinary England side. 
But, you know, there, there are about 16 players they've got, 15, 16 players that almost demand selection. They just can't, they can't fit them all in. So what, what does Scott Poland do that is so amazing? You obviously would be watching him quite close because you have up to now been in the commentary box and I hope that you're able to make it to the, at least the final couple of days. What does he do that makes him such a handful? Well, he bowls at a really brisk pace and he bowls a really good tight line. So you're always under pressure as a batter. I think that and he does a little bit either way. And that, you know, that is that is what works at, at test match level. As long as you, you know, you, you've got enough pace, uh, you're, not, you're not a trundler, then that can that can really work. And it, I think the stats prove that if you bowl that, if you bowl consistently, bang out length the whole time, uh, you will get your rewards. And of course, the other thing as well, he's hunting in a pack because this Australian side has got you know got some really good bowlers in it as well. You know, the likes of Stark and Cummins. So the pressure is constantly on, and Green as well, and Lyon. You know, they've got a, a good solid all round attack, and the pressure is always on. And Scott Bowden comes on and maintains that pressure. And it's it's worked for him. He won't. I don't think he'll continue to take wickets in the way he's taken in this no, series. He's, no. you know, he really has had an amazing series, and you know they, those things often tail off a bit. You know, it might be harder, uh, certainly harder when he goes and plays on subcontinental pitches, as Australia will um, if he does get his chance in those conditions um, uh, this year. Because they've got tours to Pakistan and uh, Sri Lanka and India. Uh, but you know he'll he'll look back on this and, and think, yeah, what what a fantastic start I've made. But yeah, he bowls that. He just he just he's always at you, which is a great attribute to have as a pace bowler. It, it certainly is, absolutely. So to conclude, Simon, um, England are obviously very downbeat again. It's been an incredibly difficult tour of Australia f for them. Now, realistically, yes, they probably can beat Australia. But the, I guess the question is. Um, other than playing good cricket, how would they go about it? Wh what are the weak points that England would be able to exploit in order to win this Test match? Because it would be a wonderful thing for them to actually end on a high and win the Test match. Yes, they've lost to Ashes, but you know, going home, having won something is a, a lot better than going home with absolutely nothing under the belt. Yeah, I mean, famous last words, but I, I can't see England winning this test mm -hmm. match unless, that's why well, I say can't, there's, a, there's one way in which they could and that I think would be to um, uh, if, if win a good toss and the conditions are conducive to bowling first and Australia, put Australia under pressure with a four-man seam attack and skittle them and bowl them out cheaply and then get a lead and then put some pressure on. Uh, every now and again, this England side of late have come up with a superb performance. There was one uh, in the first test that they played in Chennai against India, where they managed to get 500 and they managed to squeeze India and win the game on the final day. And then there was one at, at Headingley <coughs> against India, where they, they bowled about for 70 odd on the first day and, and got a decent lead and they again able to put the pressure on. So, um, yeah, I, mean, I, can't, I can't see them scoring 500. So I think they need, if they are going to win, they need to do it the other way around, really, which is to have a sort of stellar bowling performance. And they've, they've got to bowl Australia out cheaply in their first innings. I, if they don't do that, I can't, I, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for them uh, to win. What I hope we get is a, is a competitive game of cricket. Yes. The last one was reasonably competitive in that England fought hard and took it to the last day. But as you said earlier, uh, Australia controlled the match uh, almost throughout, and it was always it always felt as if England were sort of fighting, fighting, fighting to stay in the game. And ultimately, they did just 
Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's it's been really tough for them, and I don't think they'll be too sorry to get on that uh, jumbo jet back to to London or wherever uh, in the middle of next week. Well, I think these days they're now flying the Dreamliners, aren't they? Their poor old jumbos being put <laughs> well, into pastures. Well, whatever they are, <laughs> big planes that take <laughs> off and land in the right place. I'm, I'm a lover of aeroplanes, so I'm, I'm very sad to see the Queen of the Skies, the the 747, uh, sadly being put out to, to, to graze in the pastures now. But uh, Simon, man, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. We know that uh, you haven't been doing too well, but uh, um, thank you for your time. <coughs> for me personally, it's been a, a real joy and and pleasure talking to you thank you so much for your time yeah thanks very much for inviting me yeah i've got a bit covid at the moment but i'm, I'm doing okay i'm recovering well and uh, i'll be fighting fit in a, in a few days time Th- thanks for inviting me on Dean. right and as for you thank you very much indeed for listening to the podcast it's been an absolute joy and pleasure now should you wish to get in touch perhaps in terms of sponsorship you're very welcome to do so you can reach me on my twitter handle which is at dean underscore plus e we'll be back again uh, we will be chatting to the well-known South African umpire Marais Erasmus very, very soon. But until then, stay safe and goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast.